You are now listening to a Providence Community Church podcast. For more information, please visit ProvidenceTX.org. And so we're going to continue in that series this morning in Mark chapter 10. So if you have a Bible with you this morning, we're going to ask that you turn there with us. If you didn't bring a hard copy of the Bible, but you'd rather have one, that we do have some under the seats around you so you can um, find one and grab it. Um, and then if you don't own a Bible at your home, you're welcome to take that Bible as a gift from us. So again, we're going to be in Mark chapter 10 this morning, reading 30, uh, verse 35 through 52. So when you get there, if you're able, would you please stand with me and we're going to read God's word together. Starting in verse 35. And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, What do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in your glory. Jesus said to them, You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And they said to him, We are able. And Jesus said to them, the cup that I drink, you will drink. And with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. And when the 10 heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. And Jesus called them to him and said to them, you know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And they came to Jericho, and as he was leaving Jericho with his disciples and a great crowd, Bartimaeus, a blind beggar, the son of Timaeus, was sitting by the roadside. And when he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to cry out and say, Jesus, Son of David, have mercy on me. And many rebuked him, telling him to be silent. But he cried out all the more, Son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped and said, Call him. And they called the blind man, saying to him, Take heart, get up, he is calling you. And throwing off his cloak, he sprang up and came to Jesus. And Jesus said to him, What do you want me to do for you? And the blind man said to him, Rabbi, let me recover my sight. And Jesus said to him, Go your way, your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him on the way. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Good morning, everyone. Good morning, good morning to you. I want to welcome you to Providence. My name is Cord. I'm one of the pastors here at the church. Uh, if you're a guest here or you're joining us for our baptisms, we just want to say thanks for making us a part of your week. We're glad to, that you are here and we're glad to be a part of a celebration with your family uh, as we're going to be doing some baptisms at the end of gathering this morning. So like Lauren said, we've been working through the book of Mark and I need to jump right in because we do have some baptisms and so I want to make sure that I try as best as I can to be faithful to uh, your time this morning. And I'd like to pray that the Lord would speak to us through his word first. So if you'll bow your heads, I'll pray for us, and then we'll jump right into the passage. Father, thank you that you've preserved your word for us this morning, and that we can come and humbly submit ourselves to your word, not to man's opinion or worldly wisdom, but that we might hear from heaven and so be changed and transformed into your image and likeness. We do pray that you would open our eyes just as you did 
in the city of Jericho thousands of years ago with blind Bartimaeus, that you would open our eyes that we might see with spiritual eyes and hear with spiritual ears and be made new in your presence. We ask, my God, that you would meet our needs, that you would help us to not have our desires satiated by this world, but that we might have our hunger and our thirst truly quenched in your presence. And as we celebrate baptism soon, in a few minutes, we pray that it would be to the glory and the honor of your precious name. And we do pray it in that name, Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So normally what I would do is I'd read through uh, line by line these passages. I'm going to have to, for the sake of time, because we have so much text to get through, more so uh, go through the themes. But if you remember last week, we just got done with Jesus engaging with a rich young ruler around the theme of wealth and prestige and power. And in particular, he focuses on wealth and money and the mastering that money has over the human heart, saying that it's easier for the camel to go through the eye of the needle than it is for the rich man to enter the kingdom. And then he follows up after the disciples exclaim, well, who can be saved then? And he says, all things are possible with God, even though it may seem impossible with man. And so then Jesus predicts his death, and then we get this story. It jumps right off as they're on their way. He has this conversation with his two disciples in the presence of the other ten disciples, and it goes something like this. They come to Jesus and they take Jesus up on his offer to ask anything of him and it may be granted to them. Now, at first glance, if you didn't know that passage that I just mentioned, if you read this uh, from James and John, this passage, you might think them a little presumptuous. For instance, they come to Jesus and say, give me anything, give me anything I ask for. Now, if you're a parent in the room and your child did that to you, you would be like, excuse me. You know, what do you mean, give me anything you, a- you ask of me, right? But Jesus had already told the disciples, if you ask of anything in my name, I'll grant it to you. I'll give this thing to you. So they're taking him up on his offer. We want you to give uh, what it is that we ask of you in your name. We're going to ask now. And Jesus doesn't rebuke them. He says, okay, shoot. What do you want? And then they say this, grant it to us that we may sit at your right and left hand when you rule over your kingdom in glory. Now, again, apart from context, this seems a little wild, again, presumptuous, but remember, Jesus is truly the king. That's what we've been working through for seven months now. He's the king who has come in the name of the Lord. He has a kingdom that's coming. He's going to reign and rule over that kingdom. He's exerting his authority even over the spiritual darkness and the spiritual rulers and authorities. And they're saying, very simply, we want to share, we want to get a little piece of that glory, (laughs) okay? I almost thought of Nacho Libra there. I don't know why I had to filter that. But they want to see what it tastes like. You know, they want to get a little piece of that glory. And they want to sit at his right and left hands, which would have been the seats of honor, right? The right and left hand of King Jesus. And Jesus says to them, you don't even understand what you're asking. Can you drink of the cup that I drink? Can you endure the baptism with which I'm going to be baptized? Now, this is like mom or dad when you ask a rhetorical question to your child that's meant to bring them to their senses. Okay? He's saying... I've been telling you about what's coming for me. What's coming for me is really harsh. What's coming for me is brutal. Are you sure you even know what you're asking? There's no way. And their response, which should have been, like if if you're a parent in the room, you want your kid to go, okay, I know, I know, I shouldn't be asking. They said, we are able. And so you're just thinking, oh man, like these guys, the sons of thunder is what Jesus, you know, calls them. These guys are serious. Like they really are willing to, to take what it takes in order to get these seats next to Jesus in his kingdom. 
And it's at this moment that the Bible records the other 10 disciples are indignant. They're upset. Now, I do want to mention that the book of Matthew, when recording this passage and this story, actually has one more detail, which does make it a little worse, which is that it's not James and John asking this, but it's their mother who comes and asks on their behalf, which is like if you're a dude in the room, you're like, come on, man, like you brought your mom. That doesn't seem fair. But I want to point out, they are not indignant because the disciples are being presumptuous. No, they are indignant because they're thinking they got beat to the punch. They're thinking, why didn't we think of this? Like, why did, like, you know, Peter's thinking, why didn't I bring my mom, you know, or my mother-in-law? I mean, he healed my mother-in-law. Why wouldn't I just come on, like, let's go and bring her to, to plead on my behalf. They wanted those same positions. They desired glory too, okay? And Jesus answers in three successive ways. He says to them, you will drink and you will be baptized. In other words, he's foretelling to the disciples, they will be martyred. You see, the, the cup that Jesus has to drink is the cup that he will drink upon the cross, the wrath of God, the death, the martyrdom, the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. As is the baptism is related to this, all commentators agree. Some even say it's spoken of the burial of Jesus, this baptism into the fires of hell in order to take the keys of death, hell, and the grave away. Now, whether or not you agree with that, what we know for a fact is that this is speaking of the crucifixion. Jesus says, do you know what I'm going to go through? Are you able to go through this? They say, we are able. And he answers and says, you will. And all of the disciples did die martyrs' deaths. We know this. But then he says, which is interesting, it's not for me to decide who's going to sit at my right and left hand, but those seats have already been chosen. Now, he doesn't use this term, but it's alluded to, obviously, which he is saying, God the Son is saying, God the Father has already chosen who sits at my right and left hand. Now, there's two things we need to note here. One is he's not saying that no one will sit there, okay? So the seats exist. So if you're like James and John, you're like, I knew it. There are going to be seats, you know. Somebody's sitting there, but he has not chosen. This is interesting because Jesus is about to teach a lesson about servanthood, about real glory, about real power. And he's saying, as God in the flesh, he himself has submitted himself to the Father who makes that decision, this humility that he exhibits on who sits at his right and left hand, which is a hint at what true glory really looks like, okay? And then he looks to all the disciples after they're a little frustrated, and he says to them, if you want to be great, if you want to be glorious, you have to lower yourself. You have to become a servant. And then he says, the lower you are, the greater that you are, which would have been entirely anathema to them. Now, how do we understand this passage? The first thing that we have to do, and we got to do it quickly for we got a lot to get through, is to understand what is glory in the Bible. Now, that may seem like a simple thing. It's everywhere, right? The glory of God, glorify God. It's all over the scriptures. God gets the glory, give glory to God. Some of us may have even said that this morning, we're going to give God the glory. But what is glory in the scriptures? There's an obvious connection here between the holiness of God and the glory of God. And we're going to read a few passages. But there's two major ideas the Bible gives us in regards to the word glory and what it means. The first is brightness, light, luminosity, when you think of glory, you think of something physically bright, okay? Shining, glorious, a sunrise is glorious, right? A, the, a star, when you look through the Hubble telescope, is glorious, okay? Fireworks on July 4th, this would be something glorious, right? You see it. 
The other is this idea that is less known, but glory literally, etymologically, means heaviness, weightiness. The Greeks had a word that was to describe it like gravitas. There's a weightiness, a seriousness. And this is why holiness, God's holiness, and God's glory are connected. Because we often think of holiness in the terms of God's cleanness or his uprightness. But holiness means separate, other. The holiness of God does include his cleanness. It it includes his pureness. It includes his uprightness. But it's bigger than that. It's his entire being being other from his creation. Our God in the scriptures is engaged, intimately involved in your life, but he is not to be confused with being you. He is not a tree. He is not mother earth, but our God is separate from creation, totally other. The Bible's very clear about this. God says things like, I am not a man that I should lie. My ways are higher than your ways. My thoughts are higher than your thoughts. Man looks on the, in, the outward and I look on the inward. I am God and there is no other, he says. I looked to my right and to my left and I saw none. Who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? None. God is completely other. Now, I want to read three passages from the Old Testament. One is going to be from Exodus and it's Moses. The second is going to be from 2 Chronicles and it's about Solomon. The third is from Ezekiel and it's about Ezekiel's vision when he's called. The reason I choose these three, I could have chosen a number of others, is because they give us a description of the glory of God across the history of Israel and what it was like. This will help us to define glory so we can move forward. The first, Exodus 33, verses 9 through 10. Now remember, we, we went through Exodus last year, and I'm not going to spend much time on this, but there was a tent of meeting that Moses would meet with God in this tent. The presence of God would dwell there, and he would talk with God. This is one of those instances There are many, but listen to what it says. When Moses entered the tent, the pillar of cloud would descend and stand at the entrance of the tent, and the Lord would speak with Moses. And when all the people saw the pillar of cloud standing at the entrance of the tent, all the people would rise up and worship each at his tent door. So the first thing that we see is this idea of a cloud descending. We're going to see in a moment why this cloud is akin to a weightiness of God's presence. As soon as this cloud descends, everyone stands on their feet and worships at the entrance of the tent. They know God's in the camp. He deserves worship, adulation, admiration. Nobody stays asleep, okay? No one decides not to stand for this pledge of allegiance. You know, this is God in the camp, and they worship. Okay, 2 Chronicles chapter 7. This is when Solomon dedicates the temple. Remember, the temple is the place where God's spirit was to dwell. He prays a prayer of dedication over this temple. We're picking up the story as that prayer is over. As soon as Solomon finished his prayer, fire, so we've had cloud, now we have fire. Fire came down from heaven, and it consumed the burnt offering and the sacrifices. Here's the word, and the glory of the Lord filled the temple. Now watch this. And the priests could not enter the house of the Lord for the glory of the Lord filled the Lord's house. Now this gives you this picture of something thick that's happening in the temple of God. Heaviness. They can't go in because they're different than what's in there. Even though they're the priests, right? They're supposed to have been made clean by these sacrifices. But still, there's God and his presence in here. And we can't enter in because he's different than us. And his otherness might actually extinguish us. 
We see this when they used to have the high priest go in to make the daily sacrifice, but they'd have a bell around him, right? Because when he would make the sacrifice, if he went in unclean or did not do the rituals correctly and they didn't hear the bell jingle anymore, like, you know, like when the cow's walking, the bell jingles. And then if you don't hear the bell jingling, that means something bad happened to him. And they put the bell in there so they, and they put a rope around his waist so they could drag his dead body out. Because that's how fearful they were of being in the presence of the Lord. Verse 3, and when all the people of Israel saw the fire come down and the glory of the Lord on the temple, here it is, they bowed down with their faces to the ground and on the pavement, and they worshiped and gave thanks to God, saying, for he is good and his steadfast love endures forever. So there you see that worship again that always is combined with glory. All right, last one, Ezekiel chapter 1. Now remember, Ezekiel's a prophet called by God to preach a message to the Israelites that they're not interested in hearing. It's not a fun job. This is when Ezekiel is called. He's giving you a picture of what he sees. First he sees angel cherubim, and now he's going to see something else. He's going to see the throne room of God. And here's his description. And above the expanse, over their heads, the angels' heads, there was the likeness of a throne, in appearance like a sapphire, And seated above the likeness of a throne was a likeness with a human appearance. Okay. And upward from what had the appearance of his waist, I saw, as it were, gleaming metal, like the appearance of fire enclosed all around. And downward from what had the appearance of his waist, I saw, as it were, the appearance of fire, and there was brightness around him, like the appearance of the bow that is in the cloud on the day of rain. So it's multicolored, vibrant fire. So was the appearance of the brightness all around. Such was the appearance of the likeness, here it is, of the glory of the Lord. So now he's seen the throne of God. He hasn't seen the face of God because it's all bright. He just sees the likeness of what might seem to be like a man on a throne, explosion of brightness. Now watch what happens when he sees it. And when I saw it, I fell on my face and I heard the voice of one speaking. There's all the brightness again, And also the falling on the face in worship, the heaviness is this, doesn't, like, gravity all of a sudden goes, like, by ten times when you get in presence of God for some reason. Everybody falls down, okay? And not because they're um, not coordinated, but because there's a heaviness in this presence and they worship God. Now, why do I, I mention those? Because along with the glory of God includes this serious worship, this ascribing to God the worth of his name and his person. And here's something key to understanding the passage that Jesus has here about glory. It seems that not only is there a response from God's creation to his glory to worship him, but it seems like as we read through the scriptures, we get snapshots of heaven And that this kind of worship is intertwined with his glory and his person eternally. Here's what I mean. John in Revelation says that he saw the throne and he saw angels surrounding the throne, flying around the throne of God, singing, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The earth is filled with his glory. And all they did for eternity was to fly around the Lord and cry out in worship to him. These things are interconnected. There is a worship set going on eternally Because God is glorious, not merely because he deserves the glory, but because he is the glory. That's why, have you ever noticed in the Old Testament, Israelites called Yahweh the glory of Israel? He is the glory. And that glory includes acclamation, praise, worship, honor, applause. 
Okay. Now, this is essential because human beings are hungry, starving for glory. We are created this way. We are creatures that are wired for glory. We want to be glorious. We want to do glorious things, and we want to receive glory. We want to receive the acclaim, the applause, the affirmation of others about our person. Examples of this. It's why we have celebrity culture, okay? Because we like to celebrate glorious things, and if not anyone around, then we'll create glorious things to celebrate. Movies, artwork, architecture. We have craved glory since we've been children. It's why if you're a parent in the room, your child might say something like, Dad or Mom, watch this. Why is it essential that you watch this? So that you'll go, that was good, buddy. Good job, right? There's nothing wrong with this intuitively. I'm telling you it's how you're wired. You're wired to receive that affirmation, that glory. Now, it can be extremely dangerous, but we'll get to that in a moment. It's why we care so much about sports. It's not, an, it's not merely that we want to win. It's that we want to both be good enough to win and then for others to acknowledge we're good enough to win what trophies are. It's an acknowledgement of others. It's, it's really kind of, it's kind of sadistic if you think about it. It's an acknowledgement that not only did, am I great, but you lost. I am great in comparison to you. Okay? And we could do that with dignity, but it's just a fact. We are great, and we want that to be recognized. It's why your work reviews matter to you beyond just the raise. You might say, I just want the raise. It's not really a big deal. No, you do care because you want your boss to acknowledge that you are Great, you did well. Our award ceremonies are all about this, you know? It's why it doesn't really matter that the trophy was bought from that same trophy place in Atascacita that we all buy our trophy places from. We all buy these trophies from the same place. It's all plastic. But why does it matter? Because we want to be recognized for who we are. We also care about our appearances because we want people to recognize our beauty. We care about our credentials because we want people to recognize our intellect or ability. We care about our vocations because we want people to recognize our usefulness. And I can go on. We despise people who steal glory. Okay, think about military man who's walking around and you find out he was not in the military. Why is it that politicians, one of the big scandals that always hits is he was not in the military. He's lied about his war record. Because intuitively, we all feel like this guy stole glory. He didn't earn it. And it makes us grossed out. We also hate those people who, who try to leverage for the glory. We despise that. We call them brown nosers or teacher's pets, right? Why are the disciples so mad? They're mad because that's what James and John are doing. They're mad because James and John are saying, hey, maybe if we get with Jesus a little before this whole kingdom thing kicks off, that we'll be the first pick on his pickup basketball team in glory, Let's build a super team right now. And the other disciples aren't mad because they also want to be on that team. They're mad because they got beaten to the punch. They want to be on the winning team too and as close to the chief as possible. Now, why do we have this? We have this glory hunger because you and I were created in the glorious presence of God sharing his glory. The book of Genesis chapter 1 starts off with God finishing creation and saying, it is very good. This is God's acclamation and approval that the creation itself was good in his eyes. He being the glorious one has shared glory with us and we walked with him. 
And then we were convinced by the serpent to unplug from the source of our glory and to plug back into ourselves in order to be glorious apart from him. Serpent said, you will not surely die, but you will be like him. And we said, deal. I want to be glorious apart from him. And in so doing, we lost this glory. We were exiled. A sense of exile is what's in you and it's what's in me. It's why we're glory hungry. Because we remember what it was like to share God's glory in the most fundamental way. This is not an occasional incident. I want you to understand, I'm not preaching a sermon that might be for you and might not. Oh, no. Whether you acknowledge it or not, you are glory hungry. And you might be saying, I don't care what anyone thinks about me. No, that's your identity that you've created so that others would look at you and say, man, she's so or he's so independent. And then you get the glory from that. (laughs) No, you and I, it is in us. We have to figure out what to do about it. What do we do about this problem? Now, the first thing you have to understand is there are two kinds of glory, and only two. There is direct glory and derivative glory. Direct glory and derivative glory. What do I mean by that? Direct glory would be the glory that something or someone contains within itself. It is simply glorious. It's a statement of fact. It has glory to give. And derivative glory is that glory that is conferred upon another by the direct glory. Let me give you an explanation of this. Now, I want to start by saying this is a worldly explanation that I don't agree with, but it is the fact of how we live. I'll explain in a minute. Oxford University would be considered something in our culture to be a direct glory. What do I mean by that? It's got beautiful buildings, a storied history, impressive intellectual faculty. Okay? When you say something like, I'm going to Oxford University, immediately there's credibility. The graduate of Oxford University is conferred the glory, so they are derivative glory of the direct glory, and therefore when they stand up in a room like ours and you look at the program and say, oh my gosh, the guy from Oxford's preaching, he wouldn't have to say anything, you're listening. Because there's a glory that he has that he's derived from the direct, that you're trusting that anybody that goes there was worthy of a an audience. Are you catching what I'm saying here? The glory is derived. It's why the, the, the name that he bears, it's not as important that he's John Smith. It's more important, at least in that context, that he's John Smith, PhD from Oxford. That's the name he bears to bring him glory. Because if he were John Smith from West Virginia, sorry, Eric, then it wouldn't be as big of a deal, right? But because he's John Smith, PhD from Oxford, He immediately gets an audience. It's aside from his skill or intelligence, the mere fact that he has that glorious name that he has derived his glory from, he has the admiration of his hearers. Now, the truth that Jesus is unpacking here that you have to see, it's it's one of the most important things for Christians to know and understand. Jesus is telling his disciples, all glory All glory that is not God's glory is derived glory. I'm going to say that again. If you have glory that is not Christ's glory, it is derived from him or it's derived somewhere else, which means it's vain glory. It's not real glory. It's faux glory. It's a sham glory. It's 
the fool's gold on, you know, city slickers when they find the gold and it's really lead painted gold. That's the glory that you and I are being offered on a daily basis. A, a massive platter of Turkish delight, right? You remember that from the Narnia, the Turkish delight, but it never fills you, never satisfies, tastes sweet, and in the belly it made them sick. That's the glory that the world's offering. And because we're obsessed and we're so glory hungry, a system gets created where we are trading this glory like currency to each other. And no one's asking, where is this currency backed? You know what I mean? I'm not talking about our money. I'm talking about this currency of glory. Who backs this currency? When can I, you know, is there anybody who's going to be able to give me this glory if I were to pay in my note of glory? Where's this glory coming from? It looks something like this. John confers glory to Jay, and then Jay confers glory to Gary, and Gary confers glory to Joe, but then Joe is and confers glory back to John, and then people start asking, well, well, where's the source of this glory? Because it's a circuitous, incestuous relationship of giving each other the glory, but never knowing where it comes from. And the answer that Jesus is showing his disciples is it comes from nowhere. It's emptiness. It's vanity. The source is a dry well. And why is this dangerous? Well, I'll give you an example of why it's dangerous. Let's read John chapter number 12, uh, verses 42 through 43. Remember, when we think of a lot of the authorities in Jesus' day, we think they all hated Jesus. That's why he got crucified. All of them were against him. That's not true. Read this passage. Here we go. Nevertheless, many even of the authorities believed in him. Oh. But for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it so that they would not be put out of the synagogue. Okay, I'm going to pause here. For fear of losing their seat in the synagogue, maybe potentially they might be afraid of losing wages or something of this nature, they were unwilling to admit and confess the truth. Now, we might understand that, right? Maybe if you like lived in the last few years, you might have seen something like this around the world. But Jesus doesn't say it was because of legitimate fears where maybe they were going to lose their livelihoods. Or he said, no, it's not fear that's at the core of it. Watch what Jesus says is at the core of this kind of society. Verse 43, for they loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. Ah. So this is why this kind of living is so poisonous. I'll give you some examples. You know, listen, it can be, it can be kind of funny, let's say. I, I don't want to be too heavy. It could, it, it's not really funny if you're the person who's getting these letters. And if anybody's on the HOA, bless you for this. But, you know, let's say you have the HOA board and, and you got the people on the HOA board. Maybe a handful of people are really, like, just hardcore, you know, ready to flex their muscles. And they're, so they're sending out all these, all these emails saying, like, you better put your trash cans in or it's $75 fine, you know. And you got that one guy on the board that's like, man, maybe we should lighten up because, you know, I know Bill. He's been going through a tough time. Didn't bring his... But he doesn't say a word because he doesn't want to lose his seat on the board. And then he's not going to be able to, you know, go to that Christmas party that he really likes. Now, that's kind of funny. That's a comical example because it's like, how silly is this that he cares about this Christmas party? You know, we all kind of laugh. Ha, ha, ha. And that is funny. When it gets dark, though, is what about the things we really rely on? Like, let's use history for an example. What happens when you're a historian, the person that's responsible for writing down the way that things were? 
is bullied into not writing down that one thing because he has to be peer-reviewed by his peers that have another agenda. And if he writes that one truth, even though it was true and it was documented, then he might lose tenure at his university, which confers him glory and prestige. And he won't be invited to those special conferences where he gets to wear that John Smith from PhD from Oxford pen anymore. And he doesn't get the applause when he puts up his PowerPoint. So he just fudges that one piece of history because if not, then this entire group is going to turn on him. And, but guess what ends up happening? That means that your kids and my kids are not going to get the actual truth of history because the glory hunger of this group has shut out us from ever knowing that. Now that's dangerous, isn't it? Oh, if it's something like, you know, did, did this war happen in this year or this year? And it was like 2,000 years ago. Well, maybe it's not a big deal. But what if it's about something bigger? Like, I don't know, you might be thinking I'm crazy, but Napoleon has a famous quote where he says, history is a set of lies that have been agreed upon by men. Now, I don't know about you, but Napoleon, he probably talked to a few people. He knew some people, let's say. Now, you may be saying, well, that's the most dangerous thing I've ever heard of. Well, not quite yet. What happens, let's just say, if your pastor's who know that they ought to say a certain thing. But you know what? If they say that certain thing and that thing goes up on a podcast and then that thing goes up on social media online, then maybe they might not be invited back to that pastor's conference to speak anymore. And maybe they won't be invited to the brunch that they have with their buddy pastors who also go to that special seminary. So they're not going to say it to their people because you know what? I'm telling 89%, 98%, 99% of the truth, but that 1% isn't going to be said because, you know, I don't want, I just want to, I want, to, I want to be socially acceptable. I want to stay in the Overton theological window. Well, that's poisonous, isn't it? Well, of course it is. You might be saying, no, because I'm like 10%, you know, doing well in my Christianity. I can deal with 99. No, here's what I'm saying. It's always the 1% that God tells his prophets to say at the cost of their own lives because it's the 1% that's actually poisoning the whole thing. Nobody wants to say those things, though. Why? Because we are glory mongers. We care way more about what you think about me and what I think about you and who's going to be on this next awards list than we care about the glory that comes from the one true God. And Jesus is trying to wake people up to say, get out of it. He says to them, do you want to be glorious? Take the lowest seat. Don't worry about the awards banquet at your job as much as you worry about standing before the Lord Jesus Christ at his throne. He will reward his children. And that glory will be an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. And this glory that you're being offered at next year's Christmas banquet is not worth abandoning your integrity. It is not worth lying. It's not worth, hear me on this, you might say, I'm not a liar. It's not worth omitting the truth. Jesus is telling them, you know why you take the low seat? It's better for you to be like John the Baptist eating locusts and honey out in the wilderness because he has, a li- he has very little to lose and he can be honest. Better for you to take the low seat because the further up you get, the closer you get in those prestige, it's really all oh, the tangles, the webs. Because some of you are saying, preach it, Cord, that's what I want to hear. And some of you, you have some things to lose and you're saying, oh my gosh, why would he talk like this? It's baptism Sunday. We're just here because our family got us here, you know? Why is he doing this? Because the more that you have to lose, the more you realize that that applause, that acclaim, that vain glory, it will chain you. 
its claws can be in you. Let me say this, they can be in me. I don't want to lose certain comforts or things. Lose your seat in the synagogue. But what if it caused you to reject Christ? Would it be a big thing? Well, that's what it was for these men. Now, this last piece here, this, this last piece here seems to be totally unconnected. Okay, Jesus healed a blind man. Why does that have a connection, Court? Well, here's why. Jesus lays out for them the kind of problem that we're in, that we are groping around in this world of glory thieves and glory-hungry people, giving glory to each other that really is vain, and the, we have whole systems created in order to keep this facade going. What are we going to do? Well, Jesus gives us the answer here. Okay. Because remember, I started by saying this desire for glory is not the issue. You were created for that. Okay? So when your child, hear me on this, dads, later on when your, dad, when your kid says, watch me, don't say, stop being a glory-hungry fool. Don't do that to your kids, okay? Um, tell them, great job. Jesus is going to give us the answer here. John chapter number 10, Jesus travels through an Old Testament city, a an old destroyed city that's been rebuilt. There's so much to that I wish we could talk about, but Jericho. And a man named Bartimaeus cries out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Everyone says, be quiet, don't trouble the master. And he just says it even louder. Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Jesus says, bring this man to me. And then he asks this man, blind Bartimaeus, the same question that he asked James and John. What would you have me do? James and John said, we want glory. Blind Bartimaeus says, just help me see. And Jesus says, your son, your faith has made you well. Now, I've told you many times that when you're reading through the Gospels, things like geographical places or names or words, the meanings of those words, they're significant. This is one of those moments. The meaning of the name Bartimaeus is son of Timaeus, okay? When you see bar something, that's son of some, the meaning of that next word. So Barnabas is son of encouragement, okay? Every time you see this, this is what you're seeing in the word. So Bartimaeus is son of Timaeus. Well, what does Timaeus mean? Timaeus, listen, means highly prized, honorable, or glorious. Son of glory, son of honor, it's crying out. Now, some commentators had problems with this because they said, okay, fine and good, but why would Mark write son of Timaeus, son of Timaeus? If you read in the passage, it says that Bartimaeus, the son of Timaeus, was crying out. Why did he do this redundant both? And the answer, if you look into this to find it out, is Aramaic is the translation son of glory, but there's a Hebrew translation. And as is rare but does happen, Hebrew translations, Aramaic translations are not the same. See, this translation from Hebrew would have been son of uncleanness. So you get Bartimaeus, the son of glory, the son of uncleanness, who's crying out to Jesus in Jericho. Now we're getting to the heart of Mark's intention and of of course, Peter, who is the one communicating it. What the world has called unclean, Peter, I call clean. Rise, kill and eat. That's Acts chapter 10. The Jews see this unclean, blind beggar, no glory. Blind beggar, 
trying to feel around, crying out for Jesus. They're telling him to be quiet. They see him as a son of uncleanness, and rightfully so. And Jesus sees him as a son of glory. And friends, the way out of this mess is for you and I to know that we are blind Bartimaeus, fumbling around in these rebuilt cities that are after vainglory. They get destroyed by their own hands, and then they end up rebuilding again to pursue their own glory, and then they're destroyed by their own hands. And we're walking around blind in these cities, trading this currency of glory that has no worth to it. And what we need is Christ to show up in the city and to simply cry out to him, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. You see, that's the prayer that we need. You know what you need more than glory, vain glory? You need the son of God and his mercy to give you real glory. I want to close with this thought. Listen, the reason that I know that this sermon is for you, and I think I can convince you quickly, is because you have never been satisfied fully by the things that you thought would bring you that glory. Huh? Worked really hard to get that sixth ab in the mirror, and then you got it, and then what? It wasn't enough. You wanted a little bit more. You started, you know, getting your P90X on or something, doing something new. Girls, you wanted to lose that amount of weight. You got on the scale. You lost that amount of weight. You were happy for a day, and you got that dress on that you could wear now, and then you went and had a dessert, and the next morning cried, I am so ugly. Why am I this way? And it wasn't enough. You needed more. Men, you got that promotion. You got that job raise. You got your account to that one thing. You know, those of you who follow Dave Ramsey, you were like, I just need that six month and then I can really snowball into my future. And you got that six month savings account and it wasn't enough. You paid off those credit card debts and it wasn't enough. I mean, it felt good to make fun of your friends when you heard about their credit card debt, but it wasn't enough, was it? How about this? You were single, and then you're like, if I could just get a girlfriend. Then you got a girlfriend, if I could just get engaged, and you got engaged, if I could just get married. And then if I could, after you were married, if I could just have a kid, and once you had that kid, then you were like, what happened in my life? And hear me on this. I'm not saying any of those don't have joy in them, but hear me. The only way that you can truly enjoy all those things is if you know that they are derived glory from the source of glory. That the only true glory, satisfaction, contentment that is offered to you and I must come from God through Jesus Christ. Everything else, all the other, is derived from him. And if you unplug from him, they will become dead and dumb idols that will not satisfy you. That's why vainglory ruins your marriage. That's why vainglory ruins your relationship with kids. This is why vainglory ruins your relationship with your job. Because you unplug from him and you think that you can find enjoyment in it. It cannot bear that weight. Hear me, husbands, she cannot bear that weight. Putting on her kids, they cannot bear that weight. But if you connect with God the Father through the Lord Jesus Christ, he has already borne the weight for you. And he has extended his hand to you. And so here's my prayer. My prayer is that we would cry out, Son of David, have mercy on me this morning. Not because we have some grandiose, uh, maybe terrible sin that we came in here, you know, sweating about, but because we know ourselves that we too can be blind to true unseen glory and our hearts are prone to wander, to chase after things that don't satisfy. And so to cry out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me, open my eyes, help me to be content in you. And then of course that we would celebrate as we baptize those who are praying that exact same prayer in the waters of baptism. Let me pray for us. 
Father, as we take of your supper now, satisfy our glory hunger as we take of the bread. Not that the bread will satisfy us, just a tiny piece, but that, Lord Jesus, you are the living bread that came down from heaven. Satisfy our hunger. As we take of the juice, we ask, my God, would you satisfy our thirst for glory? Not because that thimble will satisfy us, but because you can and your shed blood will. And as we sing and celebrate in baptism, help us to see with spiritual eyes the unseen glory that you offer us in the person and the work of your son, Jesus Christ. We pray it in his precious name. Amen.